0: Our reading this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 30, and it's found on page 713 of your pew Bible. So while you're all flipping to that, um, part of my hope for you, and whenever I read scripture, it always is that special time to, how does this speak to me? So I ask that it speaks to you in a special way as we read it together. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Rachel.
1: So you might be wondering this morning why, since it's Palm Sunday, and in many ways we could describe this as the end of the story, or the nearing the end of the story, why I would have a scripture read from Luke 4. And if you're not familiar with Luke 4, or if you put it in the context, this is at the beginning of the story, the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Why would I have this scripture read rather than the traditional Palm Sunday scripture when Jesus comes into Jerusalem? And there's a reason for this. What I wanted you to see, which I think, which just struck me that I think is uh, worth noting, is I wanted you to see that the beginning of the story is very much like the end of the story, and that the end of the story is very much like the beginning. If you've ever looked at these two, two, two parts together, let me just tease it out for you. In both cases, Jesus is returning home. At the start of his ministry, Jesus literally returns to his hometown. He returns to where he grew up. He returns to Nazareth. And at the end of the story, Jesus comes home again in a different way as he returns to his spiritual home, the home of all Israelites, Jerusalem. He comes to the holy city, the city that David built, the city where Solomon built the temple. So in both cases, at the beginning and at the end, Jesus comes home just in a different way. In both stories, Jesus comes home, and when he comes home, there's great excitement. There's this joyful celebration. There's this wonder and awe. You just heard when Jesus comes to his hometown that it's sort of a, a stilled silence as Jesus leads everyone in worship, preaches the sermon that day. It's one of my favorite parts of this passage when Jesus reads the scriptures, and then there's this silence, and we're told that all eyes were fixed upon him. And then when he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, there's, it raises to this, just, you can just imagine everyone celebrating. And in the same way, today's about Palm Sunday, when Jesus goes home to Jerusalem and as he comes into the town, it's a much more exuberant and, and more uh, expressive celebration. People are taking giant palm fronds and waving them and crying out, Hosanna in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, recognizing, pointing to Christ on a donkey, Jesus is the Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for. Both stories, at the beginning and at the end, things go from great anticipation and celebration, but it doesn't take much for it all of a sudden to get ugly, to get ugly. You heard it, as it was read to us by Rachel, that in his own hometown, there's this celebration, lots of people talking, but all of a sudden, people start to question Jesus' credentials. Don't we know this kid? Isn't this Joseph's son? In Jerusalem, when Jesus comes home, people will, in the midst of the excitement after Palm Sunday, begin to push back and say, who gave you this authority to teach us? Who gave you this authority to do the things that you're doing? The beginning and at the end, people will want signs. You heard it in his own hometown. Jesus sort of calling it out before they say it. Hey, we've heard about the stuff you did in Capernaum. Show us some fireworks. Give us a sign. Let us see the goods. And in Jerusalem, it will be no different. What sign can you give us? What proof can you give us for the things that you've been teaching, the things that you've been doing? And at the beginning and at the end, both crowds will turn angry, furious, in fact, when Jesus calls them out on their true motives. Here in his hometown, Jesus quotes back to older stories of Scripture, basically saying, you're just here for the show. You don't really believe. You just want fireworks. You just want to be entertained, but that you're not really looking to understand what's happening here, and the crowd in his own hometown gets ticked. Who does he think he is telling us a prophet's not welcome in his own hometown? We knew you when you were a kid. And in Jerusalem, he will come in and he will, again, as the crowd will get angry when he will not perform a sign, will not validate his authority, will call them out on their motives, that their hearts are hard, that they truly don't want to receive what God has for them. The crowd will get furious. This man must be put to death. Both stories are the same in the beginning at the end and that both groups, in both places of home for Jesus get so angry they literally seek to put Jesus to death. The only difference really between these two stories is that in the first as the people try to throw him off a cliff and we're told the cliff that the town has been built on and later when people will take Jesus and also put him on a hill. A hill where everyone can see. The only difference between these two stories at the beginning and at the end is that in the second time, at the end, Jesus will allow them to do it, will willingly put himself in their hands. It's important that we see this as we enter into Holy Week. It's a a real subtle but important thing that at the beginning and at the end, what we see is that Jesus is in control. Jesus is not a victim. We do not celebrate Jesus as a martyr in the church. Martyrdom is often what gets attached to what happens in these next few days. But Jesus is not a martyr. He's not in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's not as though Jesus goes, man, maybe that Jerusalem Jerusalem thing wasn't such a good idea right now. We are in fact told by the gospel writers, Jesus turned his face and intentionally went towards Jerusalem. He is there at the time when he wanted to be there. He knew what was coming. And just in the same way as in his hometown when the crowd wanted to throw him off the cliff, and I love how Luke puts it, but Jesus went on his way. Jesus comes to Jerusalem and the crowd seeks to put him on the cross and Jesus continues because he is going on his way, the way of the cross. Jesus is in control from the beginning to the end. And yet, one last parallel between the beginning and the end is that both at the start and at the end, Jesus' ministry, his life work, if you will, what his life's all about is perceived as a failure. The people in his hometown, you can kind of read between the lines on this. You know, he shows up and yeah, he preaches a good sermon and he quotes Isaiah and says that this scripture has been fulfilled, but when he's pressed for a sign, he doesn't give us one. And we know this kid. We know his family. And you can imagine when Jesus leaves and they're not able to kill him, can you imagine what people in his hometown were saying as Jesus continued on? That kid's never going to amount to anything. That kid's never going anywhere. Yeah, he was here. We heard all the stuff he did. You hear all kinds of rumors, but he was here. We weren't all that impressed. Jesus' ministry was perceived at the start as a failure. And yet... You know as well as I do in that space in between the beginning and the end that our Gospels are filled, the good news is filled with countless examples of Jesus fulfilling the very scripture of Isaiah which he quotes. We see extreme examples of justice enacted, of peace brought, of forgiveness displayed. We see... The lame able to walk, the blind able to see demons cast out, the dead raised. We see all of these expressions of the authority and power of the kingdom of God. Visible manifestations. But here's the thing, it's not the way the people expected. It doesn't come in the way that the people expected. For most people, when they thought of the Messiah there were probably three things they were looking for when they thought of a savior that was coming to Israel. The first thing that they were expecting that a Messiah would do, a savior would do, would be to reunite a divided people. To reunite a divided people, first geographically. Israel as a nation had been scattered, scattered, by different empires and still was under the boot of the Roman Empire. A people had been scattered geographically and they were looking for a Messiah to come and bring the people together, to bring people back home. But they weren't just scattered geographically. They were scattered theologically. The the nation was divided. People were divided in understanding what does God want? What does God expect? What's God going to do? You had a variety of opinions. And the Messiah was looked to to bring people together theologically in their understanding of what God was doing. And you would expect, if the Messiah was going to come, and certainly many people did, that the people that Jesus would be talking to, the people that Jesus would go to, would be the religious, the leadership. After all, they're the ones who keep the faith. He should be coming to the leadership and explaining, how do we understand this God? You would expect that Jesus would come to the enculturated, the people in society who are movers and shakers, to help them kind of start a movement to bring everybody back home. But Jesus brought the power and authority of the kingdom, not in the way that people expected. He didn't go to the religious. He didn't go to the leadership. He didn't go to the who's who in society. Jesus focuses on the outcasts, the marginalized, the forsaken. The authority and power of the kingdom is at work, but because it's among sinners, it's not what the people expected. People, when they looked for the savior, when they talked of a Messiah, thought of someone who was going to lead an army against Rome. There's a battle going on. There's a war. And we are under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And any would-be Messiah or Savior was going to engage pushing back the corruption of the Roman Empire in the Jewish life. The ways of the people of Israel are being lost. This is a culture war. What it means to be a Jew is being lost. Any Savior or Messiah would be raising up an army. Mounting a revolution. And yet Jesus was engaging a battle. Jesus was bringing a revolution, but it was just not the way that people expected. Jesus didn't gather soldiers. Jesus didn't begin training of those soldiers. Jesus didn't arm them with conventional weapons. He didn't do it in the conventional way. Jesus attacked the real battle, the real war against the principalities and powers that are always behind the thrones of men. He was equipping his followers, but not to take on Rome, but to take on the greatest enemy that we face, the devil, sin and death. The authority and the power of the kingdom was there, but the people missed it because it wasn't what they expected. If there was going to be a Messiah, if there was going to be a Savior, then certainly that Messiah, that Savior, was going to cleanse the land was going to fortify the temple, the land that God had given the people, the the land that had been so partitioned by different empires that had come and gone, the land that had been so, again, polluted that was no longer pure, the temple that was being rebuilt but needed to be fortified the temple that was the heart of God's presence the heart of worship for the people, any would-be Messiah or Savior would be focused on the land and the temple and yet Jesus doesn't reestablish the boundaries of the nation Jesus doesn't Talk about reviving or fortifying the priesthood and the temple. And yet the authority and power of the kingdom is present. It's just not in the way that people expected. Jesus is engaging a landscape, but it's not a geographical landscape. Jesus comes and talks of a spiritual landscape, a spiritual landscape that needs to be cleansed. Jesus talks about foundations, but he's not concerned about the foundation of a physical temple. Jesus talks about reinforcing the foundation of the human heart. The authority and power of the kingdom is present, but it's not what the people were expecting. As we're on the verge of beginning Holy Week, what are you expecting? What are we expecting? Are you expecting anything? Are you expecting a lot? Beloved, let me say this to you this morning. Whatever you're expecting, it's not big enough. Whatever you're expecting, it's not big enough. The lesson that we learn in Jesus's life, the lesson that we learn through Holy Week is Jesus is always doing more than we think. Jesus is always doing more than we think or expect. Jesus comes home again. At the start of this holy week he comes home again and as he comes home again and the crowd turns the crowd in a similar way to his home in Nazareth says you know what this is it once and for all we're going to show that this guy is a phony this guy is not the messiah the savior this guy is a failure and you know how the story goes False arrest, trumped up charges, mock trial, a questionable conviction, a seemingly definitive execution for all the world to see. And yet, what we celebrate a week from today, the journey that will take us from here to there, is that Jesus in the midst of it all, in the midst of perceived failure, is in fact revealing the kingdom of God. Jesus is fulfilling the most sacred of all of God's promises. Jesus truly is, in these next few days, covenant and kingdom in the flesh. Covenant, revealing our identity as children of the Father and what it means to live in dependence upon our Father. Covenant in the flesh. And Jesus, at the same time, will reveal kingdom. That our Father is king, the king of the universe. And from the king of the universe comes authority and power that changes the world. What we celebrate in the midst of Perceived failure in these next few days is the salvation of the world. That's what we're celebrating, the salvation of the world, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. A clean slate. Completely wiped clean. Nothing left. Nothing, even that we would hold on to, a clean slate. We celebrate death's teeth being kicked in. That death, the one thing that all of us Fear, the one thing that all of us must face being ultimately conquered. We celebrate a clean slate all around. No more guilt, no more shame. Think about that. No more guilt, no more shame. Think about it and actually let it get inside you. Think about that we celebrate no more fear and no more failure. No more fear, no more failure, for death has been defeated. No more guilt, no more shame, because sin has been forgiven. We are about to experience, again, a visible manifestation of the authority and power of the kingdom. It's just not going to be the way that most of us expect. Still today, thousands of years later, as we come to Holy Week, most of us today, outside of church, would not say to another person, you know what? Weakness is a form of strength. Still today, most of us would not say sacrificing yourself for people who are cursing your name is the way to really fight for love. Most of us would not be professing that as being a strategy. Most of us would not say outside of these walls and outside of this time that, you know what? Surrender. That's the way to victory. Give up. Most of us, still thousands of years later, would never look to a grave. We would never go to a graveyard. We would never go to a tomb and say, you know what? This is the beachhead from which we will conquer. Beloved, what are you expecting? I wanna be your guide. Because these next few days are precious in the life of the church. I wanna be your guide and I wanna encourage you in the time that I have left, to take you through what these days represent and how we can and we should approach them. And the very first word I have for you as we begin this Holy Week journey, the very first word I have for you is focus. Now, these next few days is a time for focus. Such an important word, it's such a significant word, and yet it's such a hard word because so many of us here, even right now as I'm speaking, are distracted we are so distracted in our daily lives we are so overloaded and yet this is a time when the very first thing that we are called to do in these next few days is to focus now I say focus and some of you are like are you kidding me I'm great at focusing and the problem is when I say focus you think multitasking <laughs> want to see how focused I am look at the five things I can do at the same time you think I can do that without focusing I got incredible focus Multitasking is not focus. Multitasking is not focus. That's one of the biggest lies that we have. Multitasking may have its merits, but it's not focus. Focus is where we are zeroed in, narrowing down to one thing, to one moment. And these next few days are about zeroing in and narrowing down into that one moment. Now is the time more than ever to focus on Jesus. I'm not going to ask you personally, but I'm willing to bet that more than 50% of the people in this room, and and it could be myself included, we (laughs) can't believe we're already at Palm Sunday. Wasn't it just Ash Wednesday? Where did the time go? And I don't know your own personal schedules, but I'm willing to bet that the next few days, these next few days of what are called Holy Week are probably just as jam-packed. You have so much going on, you're just as busy as you are every other day. And so when I say focus, you're like, yeah, right. Focus. Yeah, I'm focused. I'm focused on the 25 things I need to do. And some of you, some of us need to hear that the starting point is clear your calendar these next couple of days. Clear your calendar. And if the very thought of clearing your calendar makes you step back in horror, shock, that should say something to you should say something to you. Now is the time more than ever, if you haven't done it in your Lenten journey, to stop, look, and listen to Jesus. And that's the three things I have for you. If, you st- if we focus, if we're willing to focus, we will stop, look, and listen. And this, that's the best guidance, advice I can give you for this Holy Week, stop, look, and listen. And all of you are thinking the Elvis song right now, if that works for you, that's fine. I got it going off in my head, too. Everyone know what I'm talking about, right? Stop, look, and listen, baby. No, okay. okay. You were with me. I knew you would be Woody. Woody was with me. All right. Wow. Elvis has fallen out of fashion. All right. Stop. Stop. That's a word we don't like. Stop. Some of us have grown up in a Christian home in this room. Some of us have been a Christian for a long time. And there's a lot of advantages to that. But one of the disadvantages, when we're as busy and as distracted as we are, if we've grown up in a Christian home or we've been a Christian for a long enough time, is that we have this tendency, because we already know the story, because we're part of the church and, oh, yeah, okay, yep, it's Palm Sunday. Oh, they gave me the palm leaf. Okay, we waved the palm leaf, that we just rush through it. Because we have yeah, been there, done that. My word to you is, if you truly focus on these next few days, and I start there, if you truly focus, you will, by, without, beyond yourself, if you truly focus, you will stop. You will stop because despite our tendency to rush, there is no fast forward button when it comes to this story. There's no ability to skip through. The passion story, if we truly focus on it, if we truly focus on Jesus these next few days, it will cause us to stop. Even though we know the story, it will slow us down even as as it unfolds. The tension of this story that many of us could probably quote, we could all put it together from memory, will slow us down if we focus. It'll cause us to stop even though we know what's going to happen at every angle. It will force us to stop because what happens when you truly focus on it, why you can't help but stop, is you come to realize this isn't just a story. This isn't just Jesus' story. This is the story. This is our story, your story, my story. What happens when you stop is you realize we are there with Christ. We are there. We are the people who welcome him into the city, shouting Hosanna. We are the disciples whose feet he washes. We are the disciples. We are the followers who will run away when he's arrested. We are the ones who will cry out for his blood to be on our hands. We have to stop. If we focus on this story, it forces us to stop because otherwise we miss, we miss what's happening. We miss the good news. So many of us are so familiar with God, so familiar with this story, we want God to get on with it. We're just like the people in Jesus' hometown. Yeah, yeah, we grew up with you, Jesus. We know all about you. Show us the good stuff. Bring the good stuff. And for many of us here today, and I know I say this every year, but there's a reason why I say it every year. Many of us are just going to rush from this Sunday to next Sunday, from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday and not give a thought about the time in between. But if we truly focus, that will not be able to happen for us. And beloved, we need to stop. We need to stop because think about in your daily life, mine too, how often, how often in our daily lives do we crucify the Lord again because we get sick of waiting Holy Week is about learning to wait upon the Lord. That's why when we focus, we're forced to stop because we have to wait upon the Lord. But think about in our daily lives how often we crucify Jesus again because we get sick of waiting. Yeah, I'm following Jesus, okay, Pastor Chris, but could he keep up? He's moving a little slow. Jesus, I'm trying to stay behind you, but you are just moving at a snail's place. I'm looking for something to happen in my life. How many of us, when we're following Jesus, finally get so frustrated or waiting upon the Lord that we finally just say with the best of intentions, you know what, I'm going to take this one, Jesus. Clearly, you're a little bit preoccupied right now, so I got this. And in that moment where we stop waiting upon the Lord, where we want to hit fast forward, where we want to rush through, all of a sudden we turn around and we realize this thing that we've taken from Jesus, this thing that we weren't willing to wait upon the Lord has suddenly become a hammer and a nail in our hands that we're putting into Christ with the best of intentions. The crowd that gathered on Palm Sunday certainly wasn't looking to be nailing Jesus to the cross by the end of the week. Beloved, we have to stop. And yet, I, I know I may be preaching to the choir. It's the people that maybe aren't here. How many of us as followers of Christ have rewritten the story that we're celebrating without Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday? We look around in our world, and what do we get? What are we celebrating? What is Easter about without the days in between? Each day that goes by this next week, you're going to see less and less people here until Sunday where you're gonna see more people here than you've seen it before. What does that make what we're celebrating? What is Easter without the days that get us there? I'll tell you what it is. Jelly beans, chocolate bunnies, and colored eggs. And let me just say right at the outset, I love them all. Love me my jelly beans, love me my chocolate bunnies, white chocolate, thank you, and my colored eggs. Not saying you shouldn't have that, but if we don't have the days in between, that is all Easter becomes. Jelly beans, chocolate bunnies, and colored eggs. It's the days in between when we focus and we are forced to stop that we get more than jelly beans, more than chocolate bunnies, and more than colored eggs. It's the days in between that make us realize that what we are celebrating is resurrection from death. That what we are celebrating, what we are on the verge of crying out hallelujah is the redemption of the world. Think about that. The redemption of the world. I don't mean to be crude, but let me put it to you this way. To try to make it hit home. As a pastor, when someone in a community, this community or any other, loses a loved one. When they lose a loved one, when they encounter death, when they encounter the brokenness of this world. You know, they're not looking to me to give them jelly beans, chocolate bunnies or colored eggs. Think about that for a second. Someone in your life dies, you come to me as a pastor, and you go, okay, let's have a, we need to worship now, and you show up and I give you some jelly beans. Here, everybody gets a chocolate bunny. Hey, let's color some eggs. I would imagine all of you would look at me in shock and horror. What the heck? What does that have to do with this? Amen. Amen. Don't put it away, but ask yourself, what are we really celebrating? And if you can't remember, think to the moment when we will all confront, if we haven't already, what we face, death and the brokenness of this world. And trust me, you'll be here because you'll have stopped. Stopping lends us to looking. When we stop, we notice things. And these next few days are about looking and taking in all that happens these next few days. There's a reason why many of us won't be here until next Sunday. There's a reason for it. Because we really don't want to see what we're going to see in these next few days. But it's so crucial that we not close our eyes, that we not turn away, that we see what happens in these next few days. We, we, many of us want to evade these last days of Jesus' life. Many of us who have families, it's like, well, I don't want, you know, we, we don't want, this is not a very family-oriented time. It's not, it's an ugly story. It's an ugly story of shocking betrayal. It's an ugly story of shameful brutality. And so for many of us, there's a reason why we want to go from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. But beloved, if you stop, you have to look. You have to look and we have to open our eyes because this isn't just the world, this is our world. I am always More and more, God gives this to me every holy week, and I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, but these next few days, for me at least, the history of the world is summed up in these next few days. The history of the world is summed up in these next few days. The nature of the human condition is summed up in these next few days. God made us, and we are free, and we are free to choose wisely, or we are free to choose foolishly. And what we see in these next few days is while we are free and we love to celebrate our freedom and we want to, want to wrestle with our free will, what we see in these next few days is just how messed up our free will is. Just how not free our will is. What we see in these next few days, and it's not unique to a specific period of history, it's unique to the not unique to one person, it's part of the human condition, condition in all human history, that in the midst of our great freedom, our compulsion is towards groupthink. What's everybody else doing? Crucify them? Okay, crucify them. Our compulsion is towards tragic violence. Okay, I'm tired, man. I'm getting sick and tired of this. Let's just crack some skulls. Let's, let's crack some skulls because you've got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. That's what these next few days are about. Is that For us, our default is, look, we get frustrated. Let's get violent. Tragically violent. These next few days are about looking around at the mess that we make and being fatalistically in despair. The world's doomed. There are more people out there proclaiming the end of the world, more and more. More people out there, as I've said again and again, who are cynical, hard, The world is going to hell in a handbasket. And these next few days show us that that's what comes of our free will. That our free will leads us to a place of groupthink. We just do what everybody else does. We lead to a place where we just say, well, violence is the only answer, tragically. And then when we look at the aftermath, we all go, well, it just only goes to prove we're all doomed. Think about these next few days. Think about how it reflects our humanity. Monday, Thursday monday thursday reflects our humanity monday thursday when we gather in the upper room with jesus is all about how confused we are i don't know what the heck's going on does anybody else know what's going on i don't know what's going on do you get what he's saying i don't get what he's saying and confusion leads us on monday thursday this is a beauty of our humanity confusion leads us to then say hey i don't understand what's going on but i just want you to know i'm with you all the way i don't know where you're going but i'm going to go with you all the way but monday thursday gets better Monday, Thursday reveals how confused we are, and yet we make promises we can't can't deliver on. And Monday, Thursday ends showing us that in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of the promises that we make that we can't deliver on, we fall asleep at the most crucial time. Really love to be with you, man, but I just need to, I'm just tired right now. Our humanity is further revealed on Good Friday. Good Friday, when all of a sudden, everything hits the fan and we suddenly realize the the storm that we're in and our immediate impulse is to grab a sword and cut off somebody's ear. And all of a sudden when that doesn't work, all of a sudden when that's frowned upon, we run. We drop our sword and we run. And as we run and someone stops us and says, Wait a second, wait a second. Aren't you a part of this? Isn't this your responsibility? We don't say once, we don't say it twice, we say it three times. We say, I am not responsible. I am not a part of this. It has nothing to do with me. Until Good Friday ends, when we're far, far away and we see what's coming and we wash our hands and say, Not my problem. Not my problem. Our human, human condition is further revealed on Holy Saturday, a day that most of us don't even think much about. What do you do when the world blows up? We have all these apocalyptic shows, you know, preppers. No disrespect to anybody who's a prepper, but really? Really, what, you're gonna last, what, six months? I mean, if the world blows up the way that we all think it's gonna blow up, you actually think you're gonna survive, and if you survive, you're really gonna call that survival? You're eating squirrels, that's survival? Holy Saturdays, what do you do when the world blows up? What do you do if it actually happens? What do you do if Armageddon actually comes? What do you do if God's actually dead? What do you do when you're standing on the other side of a rock and inside that rock is the one that you believed was God? And God is dead. What, what, what's tomorrow supposed to look like? What's today supposed to look like? And even Easter Sunday reveals our human condition. Resurrection Sunday. It reveals our human condition because in the midst of being so blinded by our tears, we fail to see what's right in front of us. Holy Resurrection Sunday reveals our human condition in that even when we start to see each one of us think about this, we all go, well, I'm going to go run. I have to see for myself. I'm not going to believe it unless I see for myself. Easter Sunday reveals our human condition because we'll be walking along the road to Emmaus so, so preoccupied with hearing ourselves talk that we fail to miss who's walking with us. Beloved, these next few days, we need to look. We need to look because they're a reflection of who we are. We need to look because it's our responsibility as the church to see the wounds of Christ, to not turn away from them because when we see the wounds of Christ, what we see together are the wounds of our world the wounds of our own souls. I don't think there's a person in here that wouldn't raise your hand if I asked you, is life precious and dear, is life sacred? All of us, I hope, would would raise our hands and say that. But what these next few days make us see in the midst of all of us who believe that life is sacred and dear and precious, what these next few days make us see is that there are parts of the world that we often don't look at, things going on in the world that we don't often wanna see where we functionally believe that life is cheap. These next few days make us have to see that it's not just Jesus, but Jesus represents all victims of injustice and persecution. That it's not just Jesus, but there are lots of people out there who are casualties of war and neglect that we don't often like to think about. This is not just about Jesus, but Jesus is reflecting the fact that in our world, there are needlessly starving and homeless in a world of plenty. We have to look. And when we look, what we will see, beloved, is our faces in the crowd. We will see us tasting the bread and the wine that we are given even as we deny and betray Jesus. The wine and the bread that we are given even as we deny and betray Jesus. We will see and we must feel the pressure of the thorns, the puncture of the nails, the weight of this cross of our own making. We need to see it. Now, some might argue in these last few minutes that this has been super depressing and in the midst of the reality of how broken this world is, Pastor Chris, what we need is we, we don't need this. We don't need this doom and gloom stuff. We need some optimism, man. We need some optimism. That's why I jump to Easter Sunday. I don't need all that stuff in between. I don't need that. I just want to jump from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday because in order to make real progress for the world to change, we need a hopeful message. Amen. Absolutely. 100% agree with you. Couldn't argue except to say this. These next few days are important because, beloved, don't kid yourself, there's no sincere hope. There is no sincere hope if we refuse to be realistic about who we are. There is no sincere hope if we refuse to be realistic about who we are. We are capable of great love or great hatred. We are capable of incredible generosity or tremendous malice. And Jesus calls us, to that love that we're capable of. Jesus calls us to that mercy that is within us. Jesus calls us to that generosity, that power and authority that he's given to us. But it's through his suffering. It's through what he goes through in these next few days that he shows us just how desperately we need them. And it's through these next few days that he shows us how we cannot experience that on our own, apart from him. we have to look and see what we often bury and keep hidden. It's that cancer, that cancer we all have, that's ravaging and hurting the ailing body of humankind. It's that cancer, that poison of self-centeredness. It's that poison of self-deception, which we're all subject to. It's that poison of our callousness, how hard our hearts can be. It needs, that poison needs to be drawn to the surface in order to be removed. And that's what Jesus is gonna do in these next few days, is he's gonna draw it to the surface so he can take it out. But beloved, you have to face the disease if you want to appreciate the cure. I don't know how many of you have seen this commercial. This analogy doesn't hold up in terms of weight, but it makes the point. How many of you have ever seen that Febreze commercial where they basically take the nastiest stuff you could possibly come up with and they put it in a room or in a car? I mean, we're talking like stuff that would make you gag if you walked in there. And what they do is they then like spray Febreze all over the place and then blindfold people and have them walk in and say, what do you smell? Has everyone seen this commercial? Everyone know what I'm talking about? And everyone's like, I smell roses. I smell apple blossoms. I smell springtime. And, and then, you know, they have that moment where they take off their blindfold and they're like, oh, my oh, oh! my God. You know, like, oh, oh. That's what these next few days are about. Jesus swallows in what he's doing. Jesus swallows The stench of our sin-ridden dead bodies. The scriptures say we are dead in our sins. Apart from Christ, we are corpses. We are sin-ridden and Jesus swallows the stench and covers it with the aroma of life, of resurrection. But you can't appreciate the sweetness of resurrection. You can't appreciate the fragrance of eternal life if you're not willing to take off the blindfold and see just how ugly, just how nasty it is. We've got to look. Stop, look, and listen. These next few days are about listening. If you've been with us these last couple of weeks, and if you haven't, the prayer stations harken back to this. I want to encourage you as you're stopping, as you're looking to listen, because what you're going to hear in these next few days is you're going to hear in a very poignant way God once again reminding us of our identity. Way back at baptism, the words that were said to Jesus that are said to us will be said again as in these next few days Jesus will reveal through what he does and what he says, he will reveal who we are. He will tear down all those false identities that we put up and continue to say that's not who you are, this is who you are. Listen, pay attention to Jesus' words, his final words in the upper room when he gives us this meal. Listen to how he tells us who we truly are. Listen as he speaks from the cross, hanging from the cross and in the midst of a, a, a An angry mob reveals who we truly are. Beloved sons and daughters of our father. Loved in the midst of our worst behavior. Proud. A father who's proud of us. Not because of what we do, but because we are his. Listen. And in these next few days, you will hear them. They'll be striking to you. You will hear The temptations come again. The three greatest sources of resistance to that authority and power that Jesus wants to exercise for us. You will hear the voice of the enemy. You will hear the voice of Satan in the accusations of the leaders. The offer made by Pilate to Jesus. The mocking of the crowd. And you will hear taunting that has to do with appetite. Appealing to approval. The offer of ambition you will hear the voice of the temptations in the next few days the very things that we confront in receiving this authority and power that God has for us but listen as well as you hear Jesus say every single time just as he did in the wilderness no 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 and listen and there is a sound to it listen for the new wine Listen for the new wine being poured out into empty jars as we spill out all that we have, all of it as Jesus takes it all, all the muck, all the gunk, all the stuff, and we just stand there empty, the vacant corpses that we are, the dead, dry bones that we are. Listen as Jesus pours out the new wine. Listen as it begins at the table before the Passover meal. Do you ever think about this? Jesus gives us a meal after they were finished eating. Because Jesus realizes that our real hunger is not physical hunger, it's a spiritual hunger. The new wine begins in realizing that the real emptiness is not in our bellies, it's in our souls. And the wine continues to be made in these next few days as the grapes of wrath are pressed and squeezed on the cross as Jesus breathes his last breath. But be ready for that wine. Listen for it as it pours out. After being fermented, it pours out of the vacancy of an empty tomb. From an empty tomb, once again, beloved, if you listen, water will be turned into wine. Water will be turned into wine. Listen as God accepts us as we are, but loves us too much to leave us where we are. Listen as death leads to life, as sin leads to mercy and forgiveness, as our foolishness is overtaken by the wisdom of God. These next few days, we are either going to be engaged, detached, or resistant. And back then, at the time it took place, people were either engaged, detached, or resistant. Some people were hanging on every word. Everything that happened couldn't, they were stopping, they were looking, they were listening. There were others that were so busy, so preoccupied, so detached, they didn't even know what was going on. They didn't find out about it till later, and maybe they never found out about it. They didn't have time to stop, they didn't have time to look, they didn't have time to listen. And then there were others who were resistant, who kept getting pulled but kept trying to go. Who kept getting their vision put one way and kept trying to turn their heads. Who kept trying to listen to something else and kept finding something just flooding their ears. We're either gonna be attached, detached, engaged, or resistant, Wherever, whichever way we are, whatever our orientation, beloved Jesus is always doing more than we think. What are you expecting these next few days? I know what I'm expecting, I know what I typically expect. When I think about Jesus saving me, I think about the people in my life who are looking for some financial deliverance. I think about people in my life who are experiencing heartache and loneliness. I think about people in my life who are struggling with insecurity, who are struggling with addictions, and when I think about these next few days, I'm looking for salvation in those places. And you may share them, some or all of them, or others, and they're all valid, but beloved, Jesus is always doing more than we think because all those things that I just mentioned are valid, but they're symptoms of a larger problem. Jesus comes to bring a much deeper salvation. Jesus comes to deliver us from troubles that are much deeper than these. Jesus is saying to us in these next few days, I'm doing something new. You have no idea what I'm doing. On that first Palm Sunday, there wasn't a soul in Jerusalem who understood what Jesus was up to. If you were to go back then and there and interview people, no one was thinking of death that Sunday. No one was thinking of betrayal and denial. No one would have spoke of such things. No one imagined that the savior of the world, if this is who this is, would be handed over to suffer and die. No one anticipated a bloody crucifixion. No one imagined that the very disciples who followed him into town would scatter like sheep without a shepherd. Who, if you were back there that first Palm Sunday, could have foreseen anything in these next few days? Who would have foreseen anything beyond a grave? If you told them he's going to end up dead, could have seen anything beyond that. And who, if you went back there, said, do you understand that you're a couple of days away before the greatest victory the universe has ever seen? Do you understand these are the days, these are the last days before the whole world changes? before not only how we worship changes, but how we live. Who could have seen that coming? Jesus is always doing more than we expect. As the scriptures point out, even his own disciples didn't understand these things at first. That's what I want to leave you with. Be expectant, but be surprised. Focus, stop, look, and listen, because the beauty and glory of it all is Jesus, then and now, Still does what he came to do. And Jesus continues to do what he means to do, requiring neither our permission nor our understanding. And this isn't to say in these next few days that we shouldn't engage our minds, that our comprehension, our response doesn't matter. What I'm saying to you, beloved, is that our grasp of things isn't as important in the end as our willingness to enter. To accept and believe the profound mystery of grace. To focus, to stop, to look and to listen. Because contrary to what we often think in the church, these next few days are not about an aftershock that happened thousands of years ago. This is about experiencing the earthquake again. Buckle up. From the start to the finish, we need to focus to stop, look, and listen at this simple and yet life-changing truth, this, that we encounter in flesh and blood, we encounter, we worship a God in Jesus Christ who is relentless in his determination, relentless in his determination to save and rescue a people who have no idea how badly they need to be saved and rescued. We confront a God who's so relentless at the start and to the finish to rescue us even though we have no idea how badly we need to be rescued hosanna hosanna in the highest hosanna in the highest indeed amen